It's Pride Month and welcome to another episode of Nipe Story. This is a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and across the continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mwachiro. And on today's episode, we welcome Ras Nawara and her story, Have Another Roti. Anamika was nervous as she drove into the 1960s Art Deco bungalow on 6th Avenue in Parklands that Dr. Shirin Manji had converted into an office. The entrance was through the type of veranda that Anamika, and probably the psychiatrist herself, played in as a child with its terrazzo floor and quaint pillars that seemed to evoke a misplaced grandeur. The office was sparse but cosy. There were no pictures of family on Dr. Manji's desk. Anamika noticed that she did not wear a wedding band and suspected she was single. Dr. Manji had the kind and concerned face of a doting aunt, droopy brown eyes with a twinkle of mischief framed by wavy hair that had a tinge of whiteness emerging in a shapeless fringe that covered her forehead. She was slightly overweight but pleasant-looking. She had been recommended to Anamika for the sole reason that she was Asian. She didn't look much older than her patient. If they had met under different circumstances, they might even have been friends. Why are you here? asked Dr. Manji, as Anamika settled into the beige velvet sofa that smelled slightly of mildew. I don't know, Anamika shrugged. I don't want to be here, to be honest. I find talking to psychiatrists a waste of time and money. I'm only doing this because my employer is paying for it. If Dr. Manji was taken back by her client's candor, she did not show it. The doctor at UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, where Anamika worked, had suggested that she might be having a nervous breakdown after colleagues found her crouched under a sink in the office bathroom. The kindly Canadian medic from Toronto, who had left a thriving practice to help out the world's refugees, but who ended up treating highly paid, self-indulgent UN staffers, gave Anamika a couple of tranquilizers and names of psychiatrists and psychotherapists in Nairobi who he believed could help her. Anamika had initially resisted the idea, but eventually relented when her childhood friend Winnie suggested she give a woman psychiatrist named Dr. Manji a try. Only an Asian woman can truly understand another, she had advised. Anamika wasn't sure. When two people are too much alike, they can't help each other, because they know the sins of their tribe too well and are adept at hiding them, not just from themselves, but from each other too. Besides, she found the whole concept of talking to a complete stranger about intimate details of her life to be unnatural and unnecessary. Psychiatrists coax patients to remember things they've carefully stowed away and forgotten. Why exhume that which is already buried? Excavating memories can be a delicate and risky maneuver. Quite often the temptation is to bury the memories in the hope that the pain they cause will go away. Anamika had managed to bury these memories for most of her adult life. Then, shortly after Rage's death, the memories resurfaced like a tsunami, particularly when she was drinking, which was pretty much every day. They say people drink to drown their pain, 
Anamika's drinking precipitated more pain. Not only were her memories more vivid when she was intoxicated, but they also resurged like episodes in the 24 TV series. One evening, she was home alone watching a Bollywood movie. Shah Rukh Khan had just confessed his undying love for Kajol through a song and dance routine in the Swiss Alps. Then, suddenly, whoosh, images of Rage's lifeless corpse swirled in her head. Then, other more cheerful images surfaced. She was on her way home from school, gathering tadpoles in her compass box from the stream near her house on 2nd Avenue in Parklands. She brought them home, hoping to see them grow into frogs. Of course, that didn't happen. The tadpoles died in her dripping compass box, their lifeless forms lying on their backs in utter surrender. Or when in the twilight hours, she and her two younger sisters would trap fireflies that lit up the garden in bottles, hoping that their bright neon green light would illuminate their bedroom at night. Or Diwali nights, when the whole neighborhood was enraptured in a blaze of firecrackers as the sweet smell of jalebis and rasgullas wafted from every corner. Anamika's childhood was comfortable but cloistered. Racially segregated neighborhoods like Parklands offered an illusion of safety, but the suffocating norms and traditions of Indian family life created internal frictions and spawned rebels who couldn't wait to escape. In those days, everyone knew their place. The Indians lived worlds away from whites-only enclaves in Karen and Muthaiga and the dingy slums of Majengo and Madare, where the African working classes eked out a subhuman existence. The pecking order was clear. Europeans slash whites first, Indians slash Asians second, and Africans last. Unfortunately, not much changed in the years after independence, despite the desegregation of schools and the rise of a post-independence black elite. On the contrary, a new type of segregation based on class and tribe. Anamika had no African friends until Winnie, the most clever girl in class at the mixed-race primary school they both attended, came along and imposed herself on her one morning after Miss Patel's math class. Winnie insisted on sitting next to Anamika in the games room, where segregation was enforced even in the types of games the girls played. The Indian girls always went for group activities like rounders, while their African counterparts preferred athletics. Winnie and Anamika's friendship blossomed. After the office bathroom sink incident, Winnie, who was now a successful lawyer, suggested that Anamika write down her feelings and when she was finished, burn every page in a symbolic act of redemption and forgiveness. It didn't work. Erasing memories from a page does not erase them from the mind. We all have secrets that we do not wish to share with anyone because they're too shameful or too painful, or because they remind us of the person we once were, but which we do not want to remember anymore. It's called self-preservation. It's how the human species has evolved. If we remembered everything, from the moment we are violently ejected from our mother's warm and comfortable wounds into the harsh and cold world, we might never get on with the task of living. So we choose to forget, 
or at least to remember passively. Which is why Anamika was so baffled and scared when her fleeting memories flashed in Technicolor. At one point, she thought she might be losing her mind. The notion that she might actually be insane, or worse, a hopeless alcoholic, occurred to her when she began seeing images of a smiling Ragi standing next to her bed in the middle of the night. Their first encounter had been at a training workshop for midwives, where Ragi was hired as an interpreter by a local NGO. He was fluent in Somali, English, Kiswahili, and Arabic, and also knew a bit of Italian, the language of his nation, Somalia's former colonial master. Ragi did not have the dark, lean, good looks of a typical Somali. He could pass for an Arab or a Swahili from Kenya's coast, with his light brown skin and soft wavy hair, which could be attributed to his mother's side of the family, whose ancestors settled in Mogadishu from Persia some 1,000 years ago. My mother's family were Rir Zamar, the original inhabitants of Mogadishu, he explained to Anamika. Unfortunately, they were overrun by the pastoralists who didn't care much for urban life. These plundering pastoralists, my father's people, destroyed my city. The latter wasn't exactly true. Rage's father had held a senior position in Siadbari's government and was hardly a camel-riding nomad. But clan-based feuds between urban warlords with a pastoralist mindset had no doubt played a part in decimating a city that was once so beautiful that it was referred to as the White Pearl of the Indian Ocean. Rage's ability to laugh at himself and the predicament his country was in was what first attracted Anamika to him. Don't be fooled, he had warned her. We Somalis are born actors. We know how to hoodwink people. Months later, when the friendship had deepened, he told her he loved her. She believed him. But underneath that cheery, carefree facade lay a deeply tormented soul, and as Anamika would learn belatedly, a frailty that rarely bubbled to the surface. Most Somalis, whether born in the throes of civil war or the relative calm of exile, grieved for their fallen homeland. Unprocessed trauma is the term for it, and Rage had all the hallmarks of the condition, which Anamika could neither decipher nor treat. Instead, Anamika had her own cries for help. Rage listened patiently with the wisdom of those who have known real suffering, but have survived through sheer resilience and optimism. How selfish of me, Anamika would scold herself that next day, to reach out to a refugee who has nothing and to expect him to comfort me. What must he be thinking? She could not possibly compare Rage's trauma with her own feelings of unrootedness. A century after her great-grandfather was recruited in India by the British as a station master for what was then known as the Uganda Railway, Anamika still did not feel like she belonged in her country of birth. Her and Rage's mutual feelings of not belonging to this place called Kenya is probably one of the things that drew them to each other. That feeling of being but not really being, of claiming spaces but not being of those spaces. The first time Rage reached out to kiss her, it felt like they had both found a home. Rage clung to Anamika afterward like a toddler latches onto his mother. Even though they were both in their thirties and had been in relationships before, that kiss felt like first love, an intoxicating mix of broken innocence, curiosity and longing.
They mostly met at a cafe near her office where many Somali refugees and their families gathered as they waited for one document or another to be processed by UNHCR. One day, as they sat having coffee, Rage pointed out a young Somali woman wearing a full-body black hijab. You see that woman over there? She's a Kenyan Somali but pretending to be a Somali refugee just so she can be resettled in America. A genuine Somali refugee in Dadaab sold her his lottery for $10,000. Lottery was the term used by refugees who had secured resettlement in a third country. Do the people in my office know? Anamika asked, with the naive incredulity of a young Western aid worker stationed in Africa for the first time. Of course. They also get a cut of the money. In fact, they are the brokers for this sort of deal. But it will be hard for you to prove, for you guys, all Somalis look the same. Rage let out a loud chuckle. As their friendship deepened, Rage confided that his younger brothers had settled in Minneapolis a few years ago. But they never quite adjusted to American life. Two had turned to crime and were in jail. Another had been shot dead by a white supremacist in a street fight. Rage did not speak much about his family after that, and Anamika did not ask too many questions but she knew they were a source of much anguish for him. What she did not anticipate was that Rage would suffer a fate similar to those of his brothers in America. Initially, Anamika did not make much of Rage's absence from their usual haunt. At worst, she reasoned, it may be that he had been arrested in a police swoop. He had had many such brushes in the past, but always came out of it laughing. Saved by Baba was Raghi's way of explaining that he had offered a 500-shilling bribe to a policeman to win his freedom. Baba, Swahili for father, referred to that image of the nation's leader that stares out of every currency. Raghi lived and died as a refugee, but he didn't see himself as one. Somalis are nomads, he often told Anamika. We cannot stay in one place too long. Our home is wherever our camels take us. I am in Kenya, so this is my home for now. But I will go back to Mogadishu someday, buy a house and live there permanently. One day, out of the blue, he asked Anamika if she would go with him to the city of his birth. The question stunned her. Not only because she had never entertained this idea, but because it seemed so absurdly optimistic. Like most Somali refugees who escaped to Nairobi, Rage led a subterranean existence, teaching English and Kiswahili to other urban refugees at a local community center during the day and working as a cook at a Somali restaurant at night, all the time trying to escape the snare of the notoriously greedy police officers who Somali refugees referred to as human ATM machines because of their penchant for demanding bribes. His fluency in English and Kiswahili often enabled him to pass for a Kenyan Somali, which is why he was so eager to teach Kenya's official languages to other Somali refugees. As the week progressed, Anamika started worrying that something more sinister than a police arrest was keeping Rage away. By the end of the week, she was sufficiently alarmed to seek him out at the restaurant where he worked. The grim news awaited. Rage had suffered an asthma attack as he slept. His neighbor, Abdi Muhammad, who everyone knew was from the Puntland region in Somalia, but whose recently acquired fraudulent Kenyan ID showed he was Osman Hassan from Garissa, had found Rage lying on the floor of his tiny bedsit. 
he had died instantly. An uncle and some neighbors had already buried Raghi in a Muslim cemetery nearby. Just so many aspects of his life had remained secret. So had Raghi's illness. If we tell you our secrets, how will we be able to charm and disarm you? He had once said. Anamika wondered when her secrets would consume her too. In her ten years of practice, Dr. Sharon Munji had never encountered a patient like Anamika. Her mostly white and Asian patients tended to be much older, usually bored or disillusioned middle-aged women searching for meaning and purpose in their lives. A few were troubled teenagers dealing with addictions or the stresses and demands of modern life. Despite her relatively young age, Anamika appeared self-assured and confident. Her smart bob haircut and perfectly manicured nails belied a woman who was always in control one who could not let her guard down even in the midst of a crisis. But the cracks began appearing when she started to talk about her childhood home in Parklands. Was she a victim of incest or sexual abuse? Or was the pain she was experiencing the result of a rebelliousness that had taken its toll on her psyche and was now erupting as anger and depression? Dr. Manji was determined to get to the bottom of her angst, but Anamika proved to be a tough nut to crack. Psychiatrists often use a method known as free association to pry open long-forgotten memories from patients. Patients are asked to associate an image with something they know or remember. The job of the psychiatrist is to find patterns that may lead to clues as to the reason for the patient's mental condition. In Anamika's case, Seemingly unrelated memories came flooding back like a badly edited movie. In the first scenario, she was having a conversation with a cousin who had confessed to her that her grandfather used to fondle her when she was a child. In the next scenario, she saw her uncle putting his hand under the housemaid's skirt just as her mother was walking into the kitchen. All hell broke loose that day. The maid was fired, but no one said anything more about the incident. That was how it was in Anamika's home in Parklands. No one spoke about anything too personal, especially a topic as delicate as child abuse or illicit sexual relations between Indians and Africans. In Nairobi, apartheid did not just manifest itself physically, but mentally as well. People chose not to see what they did not want to see, or that which made them uncomfortable. When Anamika was growing up, residents of Asian neighborhoods could go through an entire day without seeing people of other races. They shopped at the local Indian dukkha that sold everything from spices to safety pins. They hung out with each other at community halls or at the temple on weekends. Indians, who were collectively referred to as Asians after the Indian subcontinent was partitioned and a new nation called Pakistan was born, struck with their own kind, as did the whites. They shared intimate domestic spaces with their African servants, but did not really know them. They brought Dania and Okra for Manjiku, the Mama Boga, who heaved her vegetables in a large kiondo from Kiambu to Parklands every morning, finding customers by going from house to house. Everyone knew Manjiku by name, but no one knew how many children she had or how many hours she had walked to reach Parklands. This inability or unwillingness to connect with those of a different race or class became evident to the eight-year-old Anamika when Wanjiku stopped coming to her home in Parklands to sell vegetables. Neither her mom nor her grandmother knew where to look for her, 
or who to ask about her whereabouts. Later, they learned from a neighbor's maid that Wanjiku had died of a disease that was left undiagnosed for too long, perhaps because she was too busy working or because she did not have the money for treatment. The void left by Wanjiku was never filled. By the time she had disappeared from their lives, housewives in Parklands had started shopping at the swanky New Sarit Centre Mall, where one could even pick up plump, imported oranges from South Africa, a delicacy that Wanjiku had not been in a position to offer. After independence, racially zoned areas were desegregated, but apartheid never quite went away. Another type of segregation based on class replaced it. The colonial administration was gone, but the colonial mentality remained. Waiters left their 10 by 10 foot hovels to work in five-star hotels with heated swimming pools. Domestic workers cleaned houses with four bathrooms, but in their slum shacks, they only had access to pit latrines. Tycoons who made fortunes after buying off white settler farms at throwaway prices looked down on their impoverished brethren who fought in the war for independence. No one questioned the hierarchy of privilege. Everyone knew his or her place. But underneath, there was seething anger, which sometimes erupted into physical violence that no one dared to acknowledge. We are all underwater creatures, Winnie once told Anamika. We live below the surface of the water, only coming up for air when it's absolutely necessary. Showing our true selves is too scary for us Kenyans. We never grew comfortably into our skins, maybe because we've been told for so long that our skins are ugly, not white enough. We always wear masks because knowing too much about our true selves may make us loathe who we have become. Anamika loved Winnie because she always spoke her mind, which was so rare in this city of make-believe. Speaking one's mind was particularly taboo in Parklands, which is probably why Anamika struck up a friendship with this fiercely outspoken Winnie. Girls were taught to be silent, uncomplaining, obedient. Stepping outside the boundaries of the little bubble the residents had created for themselves meant inviting danger, especially of a sexual kind. Yet everyone knew that the boys and men in this neighborhood were crossing those boundaries all the time. It was common knowledge that teenage Asian boys lost their virginity in the hidden brothels and bars in seedier parts of the neighborhood. Gangbangs in these brothels were a coming-of-age ritual among Asian adolescents. These same nice, well-brought-up boys then went on to marry nice, well-brought-up Hindu virgins. But when it came to food, well... They could talk about it all day. Samosas, bajiyas, chevra, jalebis, rasgulai, mshkaki, chicken tikka. Housewives in Parklands learned how to make all these when they were girls and competed fiercely with each other over who made the best kheer and whose pakoras were the tastiest. The fragrance of biryani from a neighbor's kitchen was enough to ferment jealousy and start tongues wagging. What happened in Usha's house last night? that made her cook biryani today, a housewife would ask a neighbor. You think her husband beat her again? Is that why she's been wearing sunglasses all day, even though it's raining? Did you see the new pujot her husband bought her last month? Wonder how much beating she had to endure to earn that. She always cooks biryani after a thorough beating. Have you noticed? In Anamika's childhood home, like in most Punjabi households, food was not just a passion, but the very reason for existence. 
her family not only obsessed about food the way an addict obsesses about the substance he abuses, but talked about food all the time. Perhaps talking about it prevented them from confronting their own pain or reality. Often food or talks of food became substitutes for meaningful or uncomfortable conversation. It was the conversations of the lack of them that Anamika remembered most vividly, especially in the days after Rage's death. She recalled how talks at her childhood dinner table were dominated by how well the curry had been cooked or how nice and soft the rotis were. If she dared bring up a topic unrelated to food, such as how the headmistress scolded her in front of the whole school, or how she was bullied in the playground, or that she had tried to kill herself the previous day by swallowing twelve panadols, the topic would quickly turn back to food. Have another roti, was a common response from her mother, or can I get you some more dal? There was no tragedy in her family that food could not soften. Sometimes food was used to forestall a much-needed discussion, such as the one Anamika should have had with her mother when she began menstruating. She got her period fairly early, when she was just eleven, but because she was still considered a child, though her breasts had started to grow at an alarming rate, she was ashamed to tell anyone about it. Luckily, she had seen her older cousins use cotton wool during their periods, so she snuck into her grandmother's bedside cupboard and stuffed her underwear with a bunch. She hid her period from her mother and grandmother for two whole days until her grandmother discovered soiled cotton wool on the bathroom floor and decided to make a public announcement just as her father walked in. Anamika got her period, she yelled, much to the consternation and horror of her father. Anamika burst into tears and ran into her room, swearing never to come out until her period stopped. What seemed like an eternity later, her mother, an attractive woman who had tolerated years of humiliation for bearing three girls and no son, came into the room with a tray of food. Here, I made you pakoras, she said. The woman-to-woman conversation Anamika was expecting didn't materialize. Though her mother did tell her that now that she was menstruating, she should keep away from boys and not eat ice cream. To this day, she's never understood the bit about ice cream. It's no wonder that she always had a difficult relationship with food. Friends told her that when she ate, it was as if she was at war. The knife stabbed the meat, the vegetables were mutilated, and no bit of the plate was left without wounded morsels of food. Perhaps because she found eating so traumatic, she was also allergic to cooking. But then maybe food was how her family expressed love. There are many words for love in Indian languages. Urdu and Hindi have at least three words, each with a connotation that is unique to that word. Ishq is a playful and passionate kind of love. Mahabbat is a deeper and more enduring kind. And Pyar is a universal word for love, one that you can apply to your lover as well as to your pet dog. But these words are rarely spoken. A husband rarely tells his wife that he loves her. The language of love is spoken through the body, a meaningful meeting of the eyes, a slight touch of the hand, a smacking of the lips after a good meal. Often, I love that chicken curry, is code for, I love the person who made this chicken curry. Saying no to a second helping can cause deep hurt and distress. You don't love me? Is that why you're not eating? Associating food with love was always problematic for Namika. She could see that the extra helpings of love that her family were getting were seriously impacting their health. 
Her father was a gentle and hard-working man who made a living as an accountant at a big insurance company, but he had weight issues that led to diabetes, which eventually killed him. Anamika and her sisters were overweight when they were kids. Yes, indeed, they were loved a lot. Her younger sisters went on to marry men who also loved food and whiskey. The youngest divorced her husband after five years of marriage because the whiskey got in the way of the love. The piece of land in Parklands where Anamika's family home once stood is now occupied by a towering office block, the result of a property boom and gentrification that have consumed almost all the old bungalows in Parklands. Gone are the Art Deco verandas and real Mangalore tile roofs, as are the frangipani and mango trees that littered every garden. Where can Anamika go now to rekindle memories of her grandmother's storytelling or the fragrance of her mother's special chicken biryani? It was Anamika's fourth visit to Dr. Manji. As during all her sessions, she quickly settled into the velvet sofa that was positioned across from Dr. Manji, but at a slight angle. A box of velvex paper hankies sat on the small coffee table that separated her from the psychiatrist. She noticed that it had been recently used. One mangled wet hanky lay on the floor beside her. In the earlier sessions, Dr. Manji had already asked the standard questions about her childhood that every psychiatrist is programmed to ask. Anamika had told her, rather unconvincingly, that hers had been a magical one, with picnics in the Gong Forest on weekends and beach holidays in Mombasa during Christmas. No big dramas, lots of food and laughter. No violence or abuse that you can remember, Dr. Manji had asked. Anamika had told her that apart from beatings from her mother, which Indian mother doesn't beat her children, she couldn't remember being physically violated. What about sexual abuse? Apart from that time when my drunk uncle's hand landed on my breast, I really can't think of any other incident. Why are you asking? Dr. Manji scribbled notes in her large red notebook, letting out little sighs now and then like a child who is forced to do her homework instead of being allowed to play outside. After a few minutes of note-taking, she looked up, her face a little pensive. I should have asked this earlier, she said, but are you in a relationship? Anamika didn't know what prompted Dr. Manji to ask this question. It seemed a rather dramatic shift from her earlier line of questioning. No, I'm not in a relationship and I'm not married. Any reason why? Not that I think it's not okay to be unmarried. I'm not married myself. I just want to know if it's a deliberate choice. Didn't find a nice Indian man. She hoped Dr. Manji would detect the sarcasm in her voice. Not even a boyfriend? Um, yes, but he's dead now. Asian? Strange question to ask, Anamika thought, but then completely relevant in the Kenyan context. No, Somali. Dr. Manji's plump hands curled up as if she were suppressing a thought. She glanced up from her notebook and gave Anamika an inquisitive look. The room went silent for a few seconds. The response had clearly startled the psychiatrist but she continued with her probing after mustering a poker face. Did your family have a problem with that? Again, a completely relevant question in the Kenyan context. 
No, they didn't. Really? That's unusual. No, it's not that. My parents died a few years ago, and my sisters, well, I just didn't tell them. Ragi was Somali, after all, and a Muslim. Which part would they have had a problem with? Him being a Muslim or a Somali? It struck Anamika that Dr. Manji was herself a Muslim and a smiley, so she responded as tactfully as she could. Being Muslim might not have mattered if Rage hadn't been a Somali to boot. You know how we Kenyans view Somalis, especially now with Al-Shabaab and all that. One of my distant relatives was killed by Al-Shabaab terrorists in the Westgate Mall attack. Besides, I just didn't think it was necessary to talk about it since Rage and I had no plans to marry. When did Ragi die? Dr. Manji asked after a long pause. Two months ago. Is that when you had the nervous breakdown? I wouldn't call it a nervous breakdown, but yes, I did start drinking a lot. And then there were the nightmares. Tell me about Ragi. What's there to say? He was a Somali refugee. Grew up in Mogadishu and then fled with his family to Kenya in 1992. His father was killed in Mogadishu at the start of the Civil War. His mother raised four children by herself. He was the oldest. He ran away from the Dadaab refugee camp to Nairobi. We met through my work with a refugee agency. A self-made proud man. Died of asthma, partly because no hospital in Nairobi would admit a Somali man without an ID. Do you blame yourself for his death? The question took Anamika by surprise. No. What do you mean? I mean, here you are working for a refugee agency and you could not do anything for this particular refugee. Perhaps you feel guilty. He didn't want to be helped. He was too proud. He wanted to live in Kenya, but Kenya does not issue citizenship to Somali refugees. So what could I do? Did Rage ever ask for your help? No, and I don't know where you're going with this line of questioning. It's clear to me that Rage's death was a turning point for you. I'm just trying to see if there's any connection between his death and, she paused, your, your own feelings of worthlessness. The clock on the wall behind Dr. Manji's desk seemed to be ticking louder. Anamika wondered what she had said that made the good doctor believe that she felt worthless. I do not feel worthless, she stated firmly. I'm just having a rough time right now dealing with Rage's death. Then, quite unexpectedly, tears began soaking in Amika's cheeks. She reached for the velvex, feeling slightly embarrassed about crying in front of a near stranger. Her sobs sounded like a strangled wail. Dr. Manji noticed that the teardrops were drenching in Amika's neck and soaking her white silk shirt. Then, the eureka moment. In psychotherapy, they call it a breakthrough. It occurred to Dr. Manji that Anamika was not mourning Rage as much as she was mourning her own demise many years ago in Parklands, where talk of food had replaced meaningful conversation and where trapped fireflies and tadpoles came to die. She was grieving the loss of home, just like Rage, a home whose memories now lay buried in the foundation of a sterile office block in Parklands and in a heap of blood-soaked rubble in Mogadishu. The clock announced that it was 5 p.m. The session had ended. Dr. Manji closed her notebook, looked up at Anamika, and smiled.
Have Another Roti was read to you by Alea Kasim and written by Rasna Wara. Rasna is a writer and journalist. She has worked with the United Nations as an editor and has contributed to various publications. She is the author of five non-fiction books including Unsilenced and Mogadishu Then and Now and is the editor of Missionaries, Mercenaries and Misfits which critically examines the role of the aid industry in Africa. Have Another Roti is the third short story we're featuring from the recently launched anthology Nairobi Noir that is edited by Peter Kimani and published by Akashic Books. My thanks to Akashic Books for allowing us to produce this story. Nairobi Noir is part of Akashic Books Noir series that was launched in 2004. You can visit their website akashicbooks.com for more details on titles in the series and their other publications. Nipe's Story is available to download wherever you get your podcast from. You can follow Nipe's Story here on SoundCloud and on Facebook and on Twitter. Our handle is at Nipe underscore story. And our email address is producer at fingerpiano.co.ke if you'd like to submit a short story for consideration. Thank you for listening and be safe. Nipe's Story is a Finger Piano production.